Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the CSBI podcast. I'm here today with Garrett Jones. Uh, he's the author of Hive Mind, um, 10% Less Democracy, and most recently, uh, the, culture, the Culture Transplant, which he's, which he's holding up for those of you who are watching the video. Uh, Garrett, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I was thinking about the relationship as I was reading the culture transplant to a hive mind in in particular. Um, yeah. What, what, what would you uh, What would you suspect the correlation is, or do you, do you even know the cor- Do you know the correlation? Have you done run the test of uh, say technological development in fifteen hundred and national IQ today? You know, I would guess it's got to be like 0.5 plus, but I literally have never run it. On the, of all the regressions I've run, that's not one that I've I've never actually com- merged those two data sets. Um, I'm really hoping that somebody else will do it because to me, I think of it as um, HiveMind is a story about sort of the short to medium run. And one of the limitations of HiveMind is that I can tell you a lot about where IQ takes you, but I can't tell you much about where IQ comes from because of the current state of knowledge. So forward causation, I know about. Um, With culture transplant, I can say a lot more about the long run. I can say a lot more about where cultural traits come from. I can say that based on good evidence that you know, these these traits, these cultural traits persist to a large degree for centuries with high likelihood. So hive mind, I think of as a, a story about micro foundations, about causal channels, about like where prosperity comes from at the micro level. And in a way, um, culture transplant is a very long run story about where prosperity comes from at the macro level. Yeah. It's, but isn't there, isn't there, you know, a simpler story we can tell? So it's like, it's, I felt like, so I got excited actually when you said, uh, it's a part of the book, we're going to go, we're going to calculate every nation's SAT score. And I'm like, oh, yeah. finally, we're going to talk about IQ. He, he's going to, yeah. he's going to bring hive mind in, but no, it was, it was, it was something else. Did you do that on purpose, by the way? I'm assuming, I'm assuming. I like did. the, I like the contrast between IQ and SAT. And when I thought of it years ago, um, the idea of these, these three famous deep root scores that are created by others state history, agricultural history, and technological history, basically what your ancestors were doing hundreds or thousands of years ago regarding states, ag, and tech. Um, like once I realized the acronym was SAT, I just knew I was going to stick with that. So, <laughs> I mean, I sort of, it, it bothers me a little bit because let's say, okay, you can say I'm going to protect the weight of a nation from its height. Okay. And I have, I have measures of height. And then someone could come along and say, okay, I'm going to take the measure of height of 1500, you know, from yes. the, from the people. And it's, it strikes me as sort of like that. It's like, why, why do that when you have this, which would, exp- it would explain 1500 too. I mean, it's interesting that 1500 and 2000 yeah. have a strong correlation. Um, but why not just say there's one variable that, that seems to be driving all this stuff? Oh, the real reason why is because you can't say, if, if you're thinking about, if you're talking about IQ as the, as the contrast here, or test scores, however you measure them, it's that. I really can't say as much credibly that is of good scientific quality about where what changes IQ scores over time. I mean, um, and where they come from and how persistent they are. Like, we just don't have the data that is to my standards. Like, I'm happy to have people speculate about it, and I'm glad that there's further research going on in this area. But um, it's basically the question of uh, which, when can I be pretty confident that a policy change will have a real effect? And with the deep roots literature, which looks at how migration, how the traits that migrants carry with them persist for generations, that's been tested well enough that we can check that. Nobody's run those kind of tests for IQ. So you can't, you can't, basically, you can't credibly say, well, if we bring in, uh, if our country brings in a lot of migrants from high test scoring countries, well, those high test scores persist for three, four, five generations. Like I have a hunch that kind of that's going to kind of be true, but I can't point to real literature on it. Nobody's tested it. 
So basically, I'm I'm wedded to the evidence. I have this sort of empirical macroeconomist bias for what can I actually say with a high degree of credibility? What has been checked by people more famous than me three or four different ways? And with cultural traits, we can say this because we can interview Italians in Italy and we can interview fourth generation Italian Americans and see that they're kind of similar. Uh, yeah, I mean, but there but there are some, you know, there is some research that I've seen that indicates that these things are are pretty sticky. So, I mean, there's something that's, you know, very strong that gets down to causation that uh, I think Brian Kaplan has talked about on his blog, that basically, if you look at adoptees, I forget which Nordic country, it might have been Sweden. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they had the data and then, you know, like they, they sort of, you know, they were all improved. Well, like, maybe half a gap, right? So yeah, being coming from a low test scoring country and going to a higher test scoring country maybe closes half the gap. That, that'd be yeah. the and so you have, you have immigrants to the U S you have immigrants to Europe. Um, you yeah. have, and it seems, seems similar to the, to the cultural data, right? Well, I mean, there, I can't say that I'm really excited. I, that I'm, uh, that I've seen second, third generation tests that I'm persuaded by. Like, I'm happy to let people like, I'm glad to have other people do this. Right. That's the reason I wrote this trilogy is like, I want to help other people do more stuff in this general area in a credible way. Um, but uh, I, you know, so there's always, this is really a case where further research is needed. And I'm hoping that a younger generation of academics um, runs the, exactly the kind of tests you're thinking about, but for third and fourth generation migrants. Mm-hmm. So one, you know, one question I had about this data, about these, um, you know, these migrants going into the like third, fourth generation, how far do you go? You could never go further than fourth. Fourth is what we have with the, um, with what I think of as the cultural persistence literature. And then we have this separate deep roots literature that checks to see how is a place doing, how is a part of the world doing in 1500? And if a country got a lot of migrants from that part of the world, how is that new country doing today? So basically it helps you look a lot at the new world and it helps it. It ends up using the new world as a sort of horrifying sandbox for measuring the effects of migration on long run prosperity. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, you know, a little bit taken aback because, you know, you talk about fourth generation Swedish Americans, German Americans. I haven't met many of, many of those people are usually pretty mixed by that generation. And yeah, one, yeah, yeah. I thought there could be a kind of bias in the data. And, you know, yeah, I learned about this. Yeah. And, you know, so it could be, so like, okay, so one of the hints here is one of the studies shows, okay, there's less assimilation by the fourth generation than the, than the second generation, right? Yeah. They go backwards, they go back to Sweden or they go back to Italy and they're intermarrying this whole time. And my suspicion is that people are identifying um, ethnically based on maybe some kind of stereotypes. Let's say I'm a guy who likes to wear gold chains and, you know, I like to hang out with my family and kiss my mother. Maybe I am likely to identify as Italian. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And the same thing with Swede. I mean, there's this this bias in the sort of uh, the demographic data for voting. You know, they say Hispanics, they vote Democrat. Well, the people, a lot of people who vote Republican end up no longer identifying as Hispanic and start identifying as white. Yes, um, so do you yes. think that there could be something like that going on? Because the fourth generation versus the second generation, that's strange. And, you know, it, it's hard to explain sort of in any other way. Oh, I think it's, it's uh, easy to explain if you think that actually cultural persistence is real through some mix of unknown channels, which could include genetics, could include just uh, cultural focal points, you know, sort of multiple equilibrium things. Um, but the culture and the genes are getting diluted, I mean, through intermarriage, aren't they? These people usually aren't pure, whatever whatever background they are. Yeah, I, this I don't, I don't know enough about to what extent people like, say, in the US, right, the country we know best about. Um, that's true. I mean, I think you can probably say it with greater confidence in a place like Canada. So fourth generation Chinese Canadians probably are 
they think of they think of themselves as Chinese Canadians because they're predominantly of Chinese background. So not because of like the way they dress or what kind of restaurants they eat at. So the fact that it's uh, working in other countries too um, is um, is probably an important sign that uh, that a lot of this is real, just cultural persistence. Yeah. The, yeah, I mean, rather than self-identification. I've always wondered how much the self-identification channel matters, but I just can't imagine that it swamps it. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. the um, you know, I'm glad you opened the book. You opened the book with the story of Argentina. And Argentina yeah. is interesting because I think that one of the problems um, – so you know, I've gone back and forth on the immigration issue. I don't know. I talked to you. I, I talked to Brian. I have free market instincts. I believe in culture, and I believe these things are are sort of sticky. So you know, you can see how I'm sort of you know conflicted on this stuff. I think one thing I never thought of was, okay, is there a country where we could see it, they let in immigrants and then everything collapsed? And I, I've heard of Argentina, um, you know, their economy, um, you know, doing poorly yeah. relative to 100 years ago. But I, I didn't connect it to immigration. So can you talk about that? I found that particularly compelling. Yeah, sure. Um, so Argentina was one of the richest countries in the world about 100 years ago. Um, and then the uh, leaders of the country decided that it would be good to have a lot of immigration help grow the economy. And so they brought in immigrants from parts of Europe. And disproportionately, these immigrants were uh, bringing in ideas about uh, anarchism, socialism, and they became key leaders in these political movements in the new country. Um so, and the way I learned about this is just by picking up normal histories of Latin America. Like the Penguin History of Latin America has just has a great pullout quote that I have, uh, where it, you know they and people they use use terms like these ideas were imported, these values were imported, they had not been there before, and they came with the migrants. And of course, to many progressive academics who write in this literature, this is something to celebrate, right? Like there was this hard nosed neoliberal laissez faire society that needed. Um, to learn some something about the values of socialism and the migrants came in and created a strong movement to actually move the country in that direction. Ta-da, you know? Um, so progressive academics are happy to talk about how migrants changed the institutions in Argentina. My claim isn't that that's the whole story, right? It, my claim is that this is an important puzzle to solve. And if economists would just walk down the hall and ask historians what they think about Argentina's institutional decline, they would learn something. They would get access to a literature they'd never seen before. And, you know, once you, once you see it, you just can't, you can't not see it, right? It's just, it's there forever. So, so yeah, Argentina's institutional decline um, was kicked off in part by a wave of migrants who became politically active you know, within a generation or so. But Argentina, but the one thing that's confusing, Argentina, what was the, the majority demographic before? It was It was Spaniards, I assume, right? Um, so in the Southern Cone, it would be very close to half. I don't know about the majority, whether it would be exactly majority or not. So um, like whether a slim majority or slim, just short of a majority. Uh, but in that ballpark, yeah. So the Southern Cone of Latin America is has disproportionately European migrants. So if you look at North, if you look at the Americas, both the far north and the far south were, are disproportionately um, made up of people of uh, European descent. Yeah, so, but would, would someone, if someone had known about the discovered and known about this deep roots literature in 1900, would they have predicted that Spaniards and Italians would have would have changed uh, Argentina that, in this way? No, if, if all you knew was the deep roots literature, you wouldn't have predicted it. But that's but that's you know the beauty is is that 
my my uh, the culture transplant is is not a monocausal story. There's more than one way your culture can change. I'm documenting three big ways in the course of the book. Uh, this attitude persistence literature, which is probably more general than just the national level stuff that I'm looking at. Uh, the deep roots literature, which looks at 500 years ago stuff, and then the ethnic diversity uh, literature. So there are multiple channels through which culture can be changed. And um, the idea of just, um, if you have a migrant, if a country accidentally wound up with a migration policy that disproportionately favored communist activists, um, even though I don't have any formal statistical tests in that, of that in my book, I'd be willing to believe that um, a migration policy that formerly favored communist activists would have bad long-run political consequences. Mm -hmm. Do you uh, Have you done any reading on American history and sort of how much of the labor movement and how much of anarchism and all this stuff was, was imported from abroad? Um, no, I have not. I sort of uh, have, a, I guess, a slight bias against reading too much about America, right? When I, when I get into writing any of my books, I already know that I uh, carry too much American thinking in my worldview. And so I just don't want to like beef up on that, right? I want to let, I know the rest of the world does a lot of this and I, I've done it accidentally, but I, um, I'm trying to tell stories that people haven't heard. And so, and, and I want to give a global perspective to my readers. And so that's the kind of reason I wouldn't, I mean, you know, we know that uh, some of the, I mean, this is true in the U.S. experience, right? To some degree, I just don't know what, to what extent, but it's just, it's so easy when you're reading the history of Argentina to see people talking about how the how migrants and their second generation descendants were key figures in this movement. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, when I was reading the book, I, I had a little bit of an opposite impression. It's like, you know, how valuable is the cross national data when you have, it's like, okay, you, you, you're trying to explain, say like the average person's diet on their athletic performance. Right. And then you yeah. have like LeBron James and like you're taking, and you're trying to explain him when LeBron James is like such a unique individual, right? Like America yeah. is like a remarkable, you know, country in a lot of yeah. ways. So I wonder, maybe, maybe we should just study America and maybe not not pay that much attention. Oh, to I, that. I, I think the opposite. I think America is the outlier, and so you don't spend spend that much time thinking about outliers, right? So, well, well, if the outlier, if you want to predict the future of the outlier, right? If you want to predict, say something about immigration policy to America, maybe maybe you would look at that the way you would look at LeBron, you know, more specifically than diet principles more generally. Uh, I think you have to. I think you. A lot of scientific progress comes from uh, learning generalizations and case studies. Have, you run into a limit really fast when you try to just generalize from the experience of one country. I think like this is a case where. Um, you know, I learned a lot more about uh, the effect of money growth on inflation by looking across countries than I do from just, say, looking at the U.S. experience. So if you look at the U.S. experience over like, um, you know, 10 to 20 years, the link between money and inflation is kind of like, eh. you look at this global stuff. We have a few countries with hyperinflation, some with disinflations. And then you can really see like, oh, the quantity theory of money, money growth uh, affects inflation in the long run and affects basically nothing else. You can see much more when you look at these cross-country comparisons. So, yeah, I mean, how much do I want? How much do I want to learn about um, scientific excellence from uh, studying Einstein? Should he be ninety percent of the story or like two percent? Yeah, but it, it depends on if you want to uh, if you want to predict the future performance of Einstein. I guess, I guess is the thing because this is a this is a yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. an American. Uh, yeah. Uh, this is, you know, this is this is a book about, I think, presumably American policy. You know, it has applications if you're any kind of Western European country. Um, yeah, I mean, I, and, and I think, I'm thinking, 
it has messages for every country. I mean, the reason I start off the book with a story about what migration policy should be for middle-income countries is because it's a way of like just breaking the book out of being secretly a story about America. You know, I want people to understand that, that culture migrates and, a, and the traits persist and that that applies to the countries you want it to be true for and it applies to the countries you don't want it to be true for. Potential interactions. That mm -hmm. you might think, you know, having one or two good case studies. So let me give you my sort of interpretation of American politics and American history and, uh, you know, arguing that how immigration potentially our diversity could actually lead to smaller government, even though that might not be the norm, you know, across, across the world. So basically you had two explosions in American, uh, the size of the American federal government, right? You had, uh, uh FDR in the, uh, 30s and 40s, and then you had, um, the Johnson administration, right? And mm -hmm. you basically had this backlash to liberalism that was, uh, you know, related to civil rights, was related to, uh, uh affirmative actions, forced busing, the sexual revolution, all this stuff, um, since the 1960s. And the Republican party has gone, right wing. I mean, it's not, it's not Eisenhower, Nelson Rockefeller's uh, Republican party anymore. And I think that's directly related to our diversity. So since 19, you know, since the 1960s, you know, we haven't really had massive expansive, uh, expansive of the federal government in the way of like Medicare or Medicaid or the civil rights act or social security or any of these things. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, this, this, this arguably was because our diversity prevented, we didn't have another Johnson. We didn't have an FDR. Maybe we would have, we would have got as far as these European, uh, social democratic yeah. states otherwise. Uh, does, does that strike you as a plausible reading of American history? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that fits the, the standard story that basically when there's more ethnic diversity, there's less of a common feeling among the people. And so they're less likely to take on sort of grand tasks together. But that has bad implications as well. Taking on grand tasks is part of how you do things like go to the moon or go to Mars, right? So um, if you're going to say like, hey, if we have diversity, if we have more ethnic diversity, let me tell you what's going to happen. We're going to take on fewer grand tasks. And somewhere on the list of grand tasks will be we'll have fewer things like Social Security. I'll be like, what's the rest of the things on the list that we won't have? Please tell me. Well, maybe the maybe the government doesn't get to the moon, but maybe we privatize everything, and maybe maybe SpaceX eventually gets there, right? I'd bet on the U.S. doing it before uh, Sweden or, or China. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's very likely. Now, but but is the question one question you should be asking yourself is. Um, if the reason this is happening is because people are basically defecting more in prisoners' dilemmas, how many great things happen when people in the world of politics start defecting more in prisoners' dilemmas? And the answer is like, not a, not a lot of great stuff. You're probably going to see more sort of, um, your it's institutional quality relies on some sort of willingness to cooperate and repeat a prisoner's dilemmas, I think. And um, weakening that force has some sizable negative consequences. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you, do you see, I mean, do you see how much do you think of sort of, you know, cause you know, the, so Iglesias has written about this uh, thing called, you know, the secret Congress. So basically, well, you know, is there a model of, of uh, American yeah, yeah. politics where the culture war is sort of just a great distraction? It's actually a great distraction because it stops us from doing like stupid, you know, new kinds of government programs. And then like, you know, they are cooperating. So you have this, you have these, uh, you know, the, the, some of the big stuff recently. I mean, a lot of the, the stimulus bill wasn't really that contested i mean given um you know i don't know if it's good or bad but it wasn't you know the last few uh, coronavirus things weren't that uh highly contested um you have um you know like operation warp speed didn't become like the biggest partisan football in the world there was a little bit of partisanship to it yeah, but, like, yeah, you know, yeah. About critical race theory and we fight about this and we and we fight about that and maybe like you just need a 
you don't need like a the whole culture. You just need like a subculture of like serious human beings who who uh, you know who behave responsibly, and the masses will be distracted yeah. by what they're distracted well, I can't, by. I can't assume that can opener. So I can't assume the can opener of a subculture that's just going to keep on keeping on. So I, I'm in favor of secret Congress. I think there is a lot of stuff like that that happens. But again, if we think of cross country comparisons rather than just focusing on the U.S., we'll probably find out that a lot of countries with low to meet low institutional quality still manage to find ways to, I don't know, keep the electricity on a lot and keep the water running. And so you could say, wow, this is a triumph. These institutional quality discussions are totally overrated because, look, the electricity works 90 percent of the time in our country. Look, only only two percent of our population gets sick from the water every year. This is a huge triumph. So like a lot of countries make a lot of things limp along. And there's a sort of grading on a curve that's been happening, I think, in a lot of these settings. So using cross-country comparisons makes it a little bit harder to grade on a curve and to say, oh, I'm sure my team's doing just great because I can, I can list some things. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's right. I mean, that, that, that makes, that makes sense to, that makes sense to me. How much do you see sort of the issue of immigration as just a sort of a tail end risk? Because, you know, the, the costs, I mean, make sense. I mean, I think that, I think that's a critic might say that you're not taking the benefits seriously enough. So this is like Brian's idea of, you know, trillion dollar bills just lying on, lying on the ground that, you know, the, uh, the, you know, you have a, you have a certain outcome. You have a certain outcome that if you say substantially boosted uh, uh, immigration to America, uh, you would see these people have, you know, m- m- multiply their uh, incomes by, you know, uh, several times. And maybe this cultural stuff, you know, has an indirect effect and maybe it has a long-term effect, but you know, what would you say to somebody who's just like, it's, 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 it's certain benefits versus, versus uncertain uh, costs, despite how good the science you might point to is. It's not as certain as people's income will rise if they move from the third world to the first world. I'd say the core reason is, is uh, particularly what uh, comes from innovation. So there are seven countries in the world that create most of the world's new ideas, and the entire world has a plan. The entire planet has an interest in making sure the institutions work well in these countries. And so taking even moderate risks with institutional quality in the U.S., uh, South Korea, Japan, China, the UK, Germany, France. These are the I-7, I call them, the innovative seven countries. Taking even moderate risks with their institutional quality is costly for the whole world. And so um, I'm happy to entertain um, open borders type experiments for places like Iceland. Um, You know, if you can put 300 million people there in a country with 300,000, it would only be about as dense as maybe Singapore, I think. So I think it would work just fine. Um, and so if the open borders people are right and that's only a tail risk, let's take that risk with Iceland and let's not take it in a country that produces a wildly disproportionate portion of the world's scientific and technological ideas, which are shared worldwide. Yeah, that makes, that makes, that makes sense. I mean, I think that this, this sort of, this is the, so the, yeah, that's, that's the question I was starting to ask, but the, but I sort of adjusted to something else. Do you see this as sort of, this is just like a tail end risk issue? Like you could- I don't see it as a tail end risk issue. But I like to steel man my case. So those who do think of it as a tail risk issue will probably be willing to be worried about a tail risk of uh, persistent global technological defi- uh, decline. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of what undergirds your sort of, uh, you know, your arguments here is that you're, you're a believer, you know, a big believer in the median voter theory. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I think not as strong, you know, believer in it as you are. I think that a lot of the things like, you know, I think that there's sort of a lot of noise in our political process, like whether people even know or understand. I do agree, yeah. 
Yeah. A lot of yeah. people are so like a lot of people think Democrats, you know, want to defund the police. And, you know, they, they, they said the liberals will say, oh, they actually send more money to the police. And, you know, it's not actually it's not actually defund the police. You don't get defund the police. That, that's right. But whether people think you're defunding the police or think you're doing. Oh, this we did in D.C. So, I mean, by 10 percent or so. Yeah. OK. So, they, yeah. So they, yeah. they cut funding. Some, some they cities did really knock it down. Yeah. And so, I mean, it, yeah. it does depend on, it does depend on this, doesn't it? Because look, I mean, the fact that the U.S. doesn't have, I mean, like the media voter theory theorem, there's, there's something there, but I think the status quo bias is, is, is stronger. I mean, if the U.S. had gotten universal health care since the 1960s, it would have it today. And, you know, if it, if it, it didn't get it in the 1960s and so it doesn't have it today. It's just the status quo bias. Oh, but a, lot, so a lot of countries in the world have, have a so-called universal health care, but it's ceremonial only, right? And so anybody who can afford it just gets the heck out of the government run healthcare, right? So we can't say like, well, there's this thing that called, there's this policy called universal healthcare. Like if it's just purely ceremonial, then, you know, does that matter that much? Yeah. And so, I mean, couldn't, so, they, I mean, if, if you really believe in sort of the stickiness of, you know, just sort of the status quo bias yeah. and institutions, yeah. I mean, is, is that an argument that maybe, you know, immigrants won't, won't change things all that much? No, because, um, what it means is that uh, what status quo bias gets you is it gets you persistence. It gets you something closer to what uh, we in time series call fractional integration, which is basically things that are permanent until they're not. So or something. So basically what status quo bias gets you is a longer period between resets to what, say, the median voter wants. Mm-hmm. So you, you might get some persistence for a while, but then like when it comes time to reset, like um, there's going to be a new status quo at some point in the future, and it's probably going to be driven by what the voters at that time are comfortable with. Yeah. I mean, if, if also, you were going to be, I, say, a strategist. Yeah. Also, I do. I, I think on top of that, um, yeah, I, th- I think that basically um, to the extent the median voter theorem is not the whole story, and I agree it's not, um, there's some sort of elite control theory. And if you're changing uh, the cultural backgrounds of your entire population, um, you're going to end up changing the cultural backgrounds of your top 20% of your population. Are you worried about uh, high-skilled uh, or high-IQ immigration uh, as, much as, um, as much as the low-skilled? Because, you know, there's a lot of, at least, you know, there's Switzerland, there's a lot of good examples of this, uh, you know, of, uh, you know, groups with, um, you know, the background, the successful backgrounds coming together and it working out. Pretty well. I, do you do you make that distinction, or do you also worry about the turnover and in, in the? Elite? I mean, this book isn't the book for talking about high skill immigration in any great detail. But you're totally right. I mean, I'm I'm with you that high skill immigration seems to um, basically at least it has strong positive benefits. It has uh, the argument that it might create a lot of externalities. That seems pretty strong. Um, higher IQ people, um, on average, tend to be more trusting, and um, that's good for social capital. So like whatever sort of the concerns are that I'm discussing in this book, they seem to get mitigated when you have high skilled immigrants. Um, so and that's so, yeah, I'm, I'm that's certainly a plus factor. Right. High skilled immigration is a plus factor um, in, an, in any good, well-run immigration policy. Do you worry about the potential of sort of siphoning off the, um, you know, the better skilled high IQ people from the third world and just, you know, not letting in any of the uh, less skilled people and then just the third world just, you know, sort of has this uh, cycle of despair? Yeah, this is something that's worth worrying about, right? Because um, the, uh, if uh, a, a brain drain 
in the hive mind worldview means that you're losing folks who are really important in helping maintain and build the institutions of your country, right? So uh, yeah, high-skill immigration uh, from, uh, from poor countries to rich countries has a big benefit on remittances that go back to the poor countries. This is one of Michael Clemens's pieces of research. It's very easy to document. It's good. Um, but this sort of medium to long run institutional effect has to be important. So, right, if you're just pulling out the top 5% of a country disproportionately to come to the rich countries, then, yeah, the folks left behind um, are going to have lost some of the best and brightest who are probably important in maintaining their institutions. So part of the reason why I think that's why I start off the book with basically the idea of uh, mass immigration from China to poor and middle income countries. So it's, it's trying to make this point that, uh, you know, institutional quality can be shaped by who you have around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we, and I guess humanity maybe has a, uh, uh, can they, can they, how easy is it to leave China? I mean, can people immigrate uh, easily today? Immigration isn't too hard. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we should we should be we should be pushing for for that. Have you ever talked to people or uh, you know thought about sort of the, the charter city movement and whether they should all be starting with Chinese and then maybe inviting in the Africans or the you know the Latin Americans afterwards? I mean, I haven't talked with them. I mean, I'm a fan. Of, I'm a, I'm a cautious supporter of charter cities, right? I I do think they have this problem of um, how do you get new rules to stick in a country that tends to have bad rules? That's sort of what the charter cities movement is trying to do. Um, I hope it works well, but you're right. If you're thinking about where a country should try to get, you know, uh, you know, staffing is important, right? Who is on the bus is important to use the old, um, Ken Kesey line that is part of management culture now. Right. Um, so yeah, having people from, um, cultural backgrounds that are correlated with success, you're at least helping yourself start off in the right direction. So. It can be high skills, you know, something measured by a test score or whether you went to engineering school. It can be some kind of measure of 500 years ago um, where your ancestors from a culture that had a lot of technological success. Um, either way, like just stacking the deck in favor of success on multiple dimensions is good, smart policy. And ignoring these dimensions, um, even when they're pretty robustly documented, is bad policy. And a lot of political correctness keeps us from talk from trying to stack the deck in favor of success. Yeah. Uh, do you worry also, I mean, do you also worry about the, um, the sort of the, uh, uh, the, the political coalitions that you would need to restrict immigration in the American context? So it's interesting, you know, you talk about Argentina, the immigrants bought the, you know, brought the labor unions, uh, a lot, uh, you know, labor yeah, yeah. Uh, unions ideas. And um, in America today, I mean, if you look at, say, within the right, people who are immigration restrictionists tend to be uh, more in favor of free trade, uh, or less in favor of free trade. They tend to at least give hints of sort of being more friendly to organized labor. I mean, if, if that's the problem, we want to stop immigration to, uh, to preserve free trade and, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, an open, uh, job market. I mean, it could, couldn't we sort of, you know, couldn't we just sort of, uh, be self-defeating if you have to sort of make political compromises that involve power people who believe in those bad things directly. That's totally possible. Um, uh, the, what I do think we need to measure though, is what are the relative benefits and costs of these policies? I mean, I don't feel like, um, being in meetings with people like that. Like, I don't feel like doing that. So I live in D.C., so you sort of occasionally are around, you know, in different meetings with folks and you say, who do I like to be around? Who can I imagine working something together with? And I'm like, not those folks. I still like them. So it's just not my thing. Um, 
But institutional quality comes in many flavors. And I think focusing on the, the, um, these culture, the, the attributes of traits that help you cooperate in repeated, repeated prisoners' dilemmas are important enough that that should swamp a lot of other concerns when we're trying to predict the future. Like, I might not want to get involved in this coalition building. Um, but, uh, you know, if you look at what's happened, for instance, in Swedish, for instance, look at what's happened in Swedish politics, right? Um, over the last few years is that, um, the Sweden Democrats, a party that has done some, done, done some very bad things and had some bad leaders, um, has learned, has cooperated with these more moderate, uh, neoliberal style, um, people on the right. And maybe they'll build a coalition that doesn't have the worst things. I don't know. This is where the this is where political coalitions are hard to predict. Um, so there is a possibility. I'm open to the possibility that basically the cure is worse than the disease. Um, but institutional quality that is that has a lot of prisoners' dilemma cooperation elements is a, uh, like a. I got. I just got to stop there. So, I uh, <laughs> I kind of wound myself up in a little uh, U-turn there, intellectually. So yeah. So the yeah. the uh, so the the trust issue. I mean, whenever I see the trust data, I'm always you know a little bit suspicious because I once I look I was looking recently at a uh, you know there's X axis there's Y axis and then like I just cut off like Scandinavia and I just didn't look at Scandinavia and there didn't look to be a relationship between trust or anything. It's just like we know that these Northern European countries. You know, have you read uh, Heinrich's uh, uh, the weirdest people in the world yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. one before and so, that too. Yeah. yeah. So, so these, yeah, so these, uh, so you know, the, the the Nordics are high on trust, and they're high on you know all good things. And you know, you could like say, okay, well, the trust is predicting all these things. And I, I just wonder if this is just like an artifact. You just found that you know, uh, you know, there's there's something else. It's like I'm sure there are a million questions, surveys we could do where uh, the Nordic people would you know, uh, stand out from the rest of the world. If you asked about homosexuality or you asked about something, there's a lot of things theoretically you could think of, you know, what basis do we have for believing that it's like this question, how do you, how do you trust people is really the issue here rather than something else. I mean, I think, I think the reason why is because it's in other parts of life, trust turns out to matter a lot, trust and trustworthiness. And when we think like a whole lot of post 1960s microeconomics is about, um, principal agent problems, which are really trust and trustworthiness problems. Like how can the boss trust that the worker is going to do the job when the boss isn't there? Um, how can a, a share, how can a shareholder trust that when he invests in a company, the company is going to actually try to maximize profits rather than just spend the money on fancy furniture. And um, the fact that all of the economic theory in uh, principal agent literature relies on a mix of hoping people are nice being able to monitor people quickly, having skin in the game, means that any kind of weird workaround that we can have to solve this trust and trustworthiness problem is going to have huge social payoffs. It's going to have payoffs for how firms work, how financial markets work, and how government works. So I think this is a case where theory and sort of careful observation of what modern societies are like make you think that trust and trustworthiness um, are, are basically social G factors. So mm. general factors yeah. of outcomes. 
I'm glad you said trust and trustworthiness because you anticipated my next question. You know, is, is, the, is the, the level of trust just a reflection of how trustworthy people are? You know, it, it, there's a fair amount of evidence for that, I think. Yeah. I don't think it's just that. Um, I do think part of it is like, part of it is probably are the stakes low enough that like, if I get betrayed, it's no big deal for me. Right. Um, so I'm willing to trust my neighbor. So, but that is in turn a form of trustworthiness of having a rich enough society, I guess you'd say. Um, yeah, I think a lot of, I, I, I emphasize that, um, trust is endogenous to trustworthiness, but it pro- there probably is its own secret sauce there too. Yeah. And East Asia, I mean, they don't score high on trust, do they? No. And Japan scores very low on trust. And yet, um, they're very by normal measures of behavior what, that one looks at, it's a fairly high trust society. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. So I wonder, yeah. So did you, I mean, have, have you, you ever thought about, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's, it's really, I mean, it's, it's hard to, yeah. Do you think that, that we focus on trust rather than trustworthiness just because trust is more politically correct? Oh, it's like stereotypes. Like, oh, we just believe in like other people trust. And that's the benefit. It's not like people actually need to be trustworthy and people are, you know, honestly, you know, intelligently reacting to what other people are like. I think it, partly it's because you can survey people about it, right? Um, I can't ask, um, I can ask people, do you trust others? Um, if I survey and ask people like, are you personally trustworthy? That doesn't get yeah. me very far. Well, you have these. uh, Could change the question to be: Are people around you trustworthy? Yeah, yeah, but that's pretty much asking whether you can trust them. Yeah. Well, you had these. Why the wallet? I mean, you've seen the wallet studies, right? Countries return a wallet and come back with the money and whatnot. So, I mean, that's a that's a trust and that's a that correlates with trust measures, and it's obviously a measure of trustworthiness, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if we, you know, really believe that trust is, is that important and yeah, I mean, it's, it's plausible to me. It's, it's what a shame that like, you know, it's like you write this book, it's like, okay, immigration, like you want people with more trust, more people, people that are, you know, presumably more trustworthy, but it's like, if this trust thing is so important, we're not even trying to like make people more trust. It's like not part of our education system, right? We're not saying you should trust other people. And I, you know, you don't have to brainwash people to be naive idiots. No. I mean, I think that there, you can educate people on rational self-interest and sort of game yeah. theory yeah. and what makes sense. Like, isn't it just a, a shame that we're not, you know, if this is that important, we're not, we're not really even trying here. Um, well, I would say that we do try to make people trustworthy. I mean, when people raise children and when kids are in school, they're punished for lying. They're punished for breaking promises. Um, so there's there's an element of trustworthiness that is part of normal child rearing. I don't think that's celebrated as a virtue in our culture to um, rip people off and not pay them back when they you know when you say they are when you say well. So I don't know. Would you would you disagree with me on that? Uh, I think it's, I think that's right. Um, I, but I think, I think we don't make this, we don't make the, I think we, we don't make like the, 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 the strongest possible case for, for trust. Like, I think that if you ask most people, like, I think the median, like Americans opinion on like, why are there rich people? It's probably something along the lines of, you know, they, uh, they exploited someone or they did something. Maybe not, maybe not in America, probably the, the median PhD and, you know, a lot of social science, a lot of social science fields. Um, and I, I don't think we do a good enough job of communicating to people sort of, how far enlightened self-interest goes and just, you know, building, building the world. Like when we talk to little kids, we say, you should share, you should share. Um, you know, it's like, it's like, just like, you know, we have this like communist idea that they should just be encouraged to just share because it's a good, it's a good thing. Um, and we know, and we don't, you know, if like a kid just like ends up, you know, I don't know, like, uh, 
building something really cool and then like redistributing it or something, right? We don't say like that's cool, but like actually in life, like you want the person who's you want productivity, right? So it, it seems to me that we we sort of do it in like a a communist way, but we don't we don't do the best possible way. We don't sort of inoculate these uh, values because look, if a person doesn't want to share, if they can't see it in their own self interest, and if they're by nature a selfish person, it's not going to be convincing just to try to beat it into their heads that they should be you know sharing and playing nice with others. Yeah, and um, the flip side of this is that when people do engage in competition, so many of the game—I mean, almost all the all the games kids play are zero sum, right? So, and uh, you know, if I win the soccer game, you lose the soccer game. So, whereas you know, the sort of magic of markets is like I can create a lot of stuff, and it kind of doesn't literally make everybody better off, but it creates a big surplus. So, and that's really where that's where most of the good stuff comes from. This is cozy and bargaining, right? Like, let's let's try to grow the pie. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm happy to see that smarter people are more likely to grow the pie, but we seem to not, we don't have enough pie growing games. So. Yeah. We don't have enough pie growing games. That's, that's right. We're not hardwired. We, we don't spontaneously do it. We, we really have to sort of go out of our way to, uh, I mean, uh, to- I will say that, um, one of the pluses of modern, re- a lot of modern, uh, reality TV competition shows are very, um, positive stuff, right? You see a bunch of people coming in and cooking different dishes or baking cakes or whatever it is. And you sort of celebrate all of their coolness when they do something cool. And there is a winner that's that's handed out, right? Somebody is called the winner. But we often watch and say, like, wow, they're all really good. Like, you can watch Dancing with the Stars and you're celebrating the progress, the sort of positive sum progress of all of the players. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's right. There's baking shows, there's cook shows. There's also shows that are purely zero sum, and I, I think those you know, those are also very successful too. So like Big Brother or Survivor. I don't know if you've ever seen these, but the yeah, rules yeah, are a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're 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 you know they put these people in these like sort of prisoner dilemma like situations that are actually that are actually quite brilliant and you know there's all these you know human emotions sort of wrapped in because these people are living with each other so it's it's actually yeah I'm a big fan of <laughs> I'm a big fan of a lot of reality TV I think economists would find a lot that's very interesting and in, uh, in a lot of them <clears throat> uh, so the yeah so the um, the chapter on China I mean the Chinese immigrants is is, is fascinating I mean you know that's like the um, the numbers on like the you know the, the starting businesses, how much of the wealth they own in like countries like Malaysia, is is amazing. Um, and you know, I think you you make the plausible case that if like Africa welcomed you know Chinese to the same extent of these Southeast, not not like that as if these Southeast Asian countries are welcoming them with open arms. Often they're discriminating yeah. against them, particularly yeah. in Malaysia. Um, you know, but the, but there but there is a you know there is a sort of political economy danger here, right? It's like people do not like you know people do not like this idea of the elites being different than themselves, and mm-hmm. you're going to have sort of you know you're probably going to have these kind of affirmative action set asides and you know riots and stuff. Um, I, I, I guess your I guess your argument would probably be it's look it's still going to end up being better for them. You say this explicitly, you know, once you like. Yeah, I say it explicitly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, because uh, the, I mean, the payoffs. The poorest countries in the world are are just so abysmally poor that um, the the risks of genuine violent ethnic conflict are worth are out outweigh the genuine risks of children dying from diarrhea by the men, by the thousands every year, right? So basically, there's there are. Like institutional improvement is worth um, it's a it's a trade off worth making in many many cases. I'm not going to claim in every case it is, um, but if you could say if somebody could go back in time and say let's uh, change Malaysia so that there was never a wave of Chinese immigration, um, would a would any kind of halfway benevolent social planner say 
no, I don't want to do that because there have been ethnic riots that have been deadly. Do you know if there are any third world countries that just encourage, you know, uh, immigration from uh, high skilled countries or that they just have sort of open borders with the first world? Do you know if anyone does anything close to that? Um, I'm told that, I mean, Argentina isn't one of the poorest countries, but I, I'm told that Argentina actually has a very easy um, migration policy. It is strange, though, how many poor countries just make it really hard to come there, right? So, um, so I don't know. No, I don't know the answers. I'm not an immigration policy, like legal immigration law person. But um, if you read, I would recommend uh, David French's uh, China's Second Continent on this, which is about Chinese migration to Africa. So uh, you get the sense from reading the book that David French, who's um, lived there in sub, both in China and in sub-Saharan Africa, um, that it's not hard for Chinese migrants to move to um, sub-Saharan Africa, start businesses, um, and stay there for generations. And what, what what are the flows like? I mean, we hear about this stuff in the news, but is it is it is it is a substantial He's portion? Like, of the he says maybe like a million people in ter- in terms of the flow right now in sub-Saharan Africa, which is tiny, right? It's not um, anything that would show up in any of the regressions that are being used in the culture transplant, right? So it's a pretty small flow. If you made those yeah. fifty times larger, you would you would see something noteworthy, I think. Yeah, if it's easy to leave China, I mean, China is uh, you know their growth is slowing down. They're the zero COVID. I mean, they looks like they've lost their minds with that. I'm surprised. I, I would be surprised that there's not a uh, more migration from from China. It makes me think it might be harder. Yeah, I suspect a lot of people would like to get out um, from yeah, because the the zero COVID regime just creates uncertainty that now. Um, with with some probability lasts for decades, with high probability lasts for years to come. So, yeah, maybe there's maybe they actually. You know, I've seen I've seen some reporting that the people are actually they're pressuring the government not to take off the COVID restrictions. That there's yeah, uh, so there, there was one city, uh, Chongqing. Uh, you know, I don't know how you say it, but that city okay. in the southwest uh, yeah, yeah. where uh, uh, basically the, the there was I think there was a, a COVID outbreak and like they they had some numbers on the. Um, the public transportation, it's like, you know, 80% or 90% of something people stop traveling um, on public transportation. So it seems like they, seems like they, they are uh, legitimately freaked out by, by COVID. So maybe, maybe they're afraid to go to the rest of the world, but you think that you think yeah. that some would, right. You think that, that that's, you know, you've seen this stuff about, it seems like the people who are wealthiest are, you know, you hear about this exodus from Hong Kong mm-hmm. um, due to the, a lot of the COVID stuff. And I expect, you know, I think if they keep, up with this there's got to be it's got to spread to the upper and middle classes right so maybe maybe zero covid maybe you'll get maybe you'll get your your policy wish where they all end up in africa or latin america or something yeah i mean and uh, more in southeast asia like uh chinese tri- chinese migrant communities in southeast asia have done a lot of great things and they continue to do more so yeah yeah uh so on uh you know on the, on the question of um democracy i mean have you have you uh since you wrote uh 10 less democracy i mean ha- have your views changed because a lot has happened in the world we have zero covid we have the war in ukraine we have the democratic uh west response to uh the war in ukraine um has, has any has you changed your mind on anything because a lot of i've changed mine a lot and i just want to wonder you know what what you think no i mean i, I think that um you know, when it, the comparison is always the elites versus the actually existing masses, not the masses that I would get if there if I could persuade them that I was right. Right. The way a lot of things seem to work is people compare the elites to their ideal version of the masses, um, one that's not corrupted by whatever evil force people think are in corrupting the masses. So the, the actual existing elites versus the actually existing masses I think the elites are doing pretty good. So. Yeah. Would you go as far as there's a guy who was an FDA economist um, and he was uh, named Richard uh, Bruns and he 
said something recently on a podcast. He said, you know, our current elites for all their flaws are the most moral elites in human history or something like that. Would, would you go uh, as, far as, as far as he does? No, I mean, it's almost a tautology because he's probably going to define moral as um, people holding the views of elites today, right? And so since morality has changed every 20 or 30 years, I mean, I like a lot of those directions, but um, he's pretty close to making it definitionally true. I don't. So, I mean, I, well, I mean, yeah. not. A, I think if you asked Americans, well, that would predict if you asked Americans, are our elites the greatest people in human history? You know, they yeah. wouldn't. They, you know, they, they. I, I think five. They'd probably say no. They'd be like, well, George Washington was better, right? So exactly. So yeah. 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 So uh, uh, yeah. The uh, yeah, but I mean, part of that is because the average American doesn't know what anybody else was doing before, like six months ago. Right. right? They can bring you know to them like. Um, you know, Abraham Lincoln and, and Gandalf lived in the same time period. Do you think, do you think that, um, do you think that the sort of incoherent, incoherent, like sort of anti-elitism that is very strong in our politics, like someone just gets up and they start bashing Washington and, yeah. You ever, do you ever look at Gingrich's 1994 contract with America? I was just looking at it the other yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I worked, uh, I worked in Congress in 95, so yeah. Okay. Well, it's interesting to me because like the stuff that's there, it's so, it's. It, I found it so cheap. It's like cut the staff of Congress, right? It's like one of his yeah. biggest things. And I'm like, it's like, okay, make Congress subject to the same rules as everyone. And it's like these that things that are just like, yeah, yeah. And it was so successful politically. And it's yeah. like the yeah. idea was like all you would do is you would go to the people and you would say the elites are bad, they're cheaters, are corrupt. Not even. It's sort of like ideology free. Like okay, balance the budget. Don't give them any like trade offs on like how you balance the budget. Just say balanced budgets are good. You know, uh, you have to. You know, one of them is like you need a, a constitutional amendment, either balanced budget, and it was like you know two thirds to raise taxes or something like that. Um, where do you think? Where do you think this comes from? It, it, you know, because it's not always there in every society this idea that just like you know uh you know just bashing elites and bashing who's in charge um that's not always sort of like there as part of politics so like why is this such a part of american political life you know i'm i'm actually reading i'm uh citizens a great book about the french revolution and the in the french revolution the french just love beating up on their elites too right it just became and even the elites love beating up on the elites you know they they resigned all their titles one night you know August 4th, 1789, right? So, um, and uh, the, I don't know what the what the cycle is of coming and going, but the elites are never held in super high, are rarely held in super high esteem. And um, people are, I, I do think people sort of want to blame their local God when there's a failure, right? And so the elites are their local God. And so they want to sort of bring down that sort of um, defeatable God. It- is there anything in your view that elites could do to sort of diffuse some of this? I mean, a lot of it is showing that. Uh, at, so this is it's very clearly like doing contradictory involves doing contradictory things. Right. So there are these form all the formulas involve a bunch of contradictions. Right. So you're supposed to show that you're in touch with the people, but also separate from them. Right. So it's a little bit like the Christian view of being in the world, but not of the world. Right. So. um Every monarch, monarchs have had to wrestle with this, right? So uh, the movie, um, the movie that was about how Queen Elizabeth dealt with the death of Princess Diana is all about this. Basically, how do you adjust your role? Um, Emperor Hirohito had to wrestle with this in his when he first came to the throne, well before World War II. Um, so there's this balance between not even a balance, a fusion between being comfortable. Um, 
with the people and being clearly above them. That seems to be crucial. And the problem is, is that because these are both cultural acts and because cultural acts all have multiple interpretations, people can just reinterpret what you've been doing for the last 10 years as being elitist rather than populist. Yeah, on a dime, right? It's all about it's all about coordination games. So cultural, yeah. cultural norms. Yeah, but, but but why? But why? But the question is why? Why across time does it change so much? So like people, do they always high, have the lead of high regard? Apparently, they did in the 1950s. If you ask them, like, is the government going to do you know the right thing most of the time? Apparently, stuff like that used to get. Oh, okay, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they had very, World War Two, so we'd won World well, that'd be, War Two. Maybe the Americans, the Americans would have uh, respected their elites more, right? So. Yeah. So if you look up, you know, trust in government, I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's by widely varies. I mean, I just pulled it up. It was, you know, Switzerland, India, Norway, yeah. uh, India, India is a little bit of a strange, you know, outlier. Russia apparently was, you know, 2014 had very high, high trust in their government. Uh, so it does seem to very, not very predictably regarding, uh, you know, relative to government quality, right? It just sort of, it's, it's strange. It's, it's sort of like, it's sort of like, you know, it's like, is it just sort of, you know, li- sort of liberal liberalism plus is, is the diversity here part of it, part of it too? Do you just think that, you know, the government sort of, you know, like our, our elites, for example, I think that a lot of white Americans see them as overly uh, solicitous towards the concerns of uh, minority activists and that, you know, turns people against them. And if people are overly solicitous towards, you know, white Americans, rural white Americans, minorities can turn against them too. Do you think this is another just cost of diversity? Obvi- I obviously like, People are looking for focal points that are signals that you don't care about my team enough. And ethnic diversity, unfortunately, makes it easier for people to find those focal points, right? So that's just adding, it's one more reason. And so if you if you see cultural attitudes towards elites as being culturally driven, then you're going to be thinking in terms of multiple equilibria. And you're going to be wondering what the focal points are that would make people lock onto one rather than another. And... Um, having a, a more a more broadly shared understanding of the norms of society makes it easier to lock onto one equilibria and having multi you know polyvalent very diverse forms of what's right and wrong means you're going to have multiple equilibria and multiple equilibria seems like cultural chaos to people so mm-hmm. yeah i mean it seems like a lot of countries you know think about the 1500s and how after the religious wars of the west the europe had to come up with basically a whole new set of cultural norms that were basically ways of saying, we're just not going to think about religion. So at least in our public sphere, and that was a cultural act. And before that cultural act had been completed, um, it was very easy for every discussion to really be a discussion of in-group versus out-group. And um, ethnic diversity creates those same, similar, not the same, similar kinds of of, uh, focal point problems. So. Yeah. So I talked to Dave Bernstein not that long ago, uh, who's a GMU law professor. He wrote a book on racial, the history of racial classification uh, uh-huh. in America. So does that, I mean, what, what you're, and he, he talks about, you know, we want the separation of race and state as, as sort of a goal. Is this a way sort of out, uh, out of this dilemma? So maybe if you looked at like chances of civil war based on, uh, diversity in Christian de- denomination, maybe in the uh, 16th century, maybe that would have been a very good predictor. It's probably not a good predictor in the 20th century. Um, is is that where we, we we could get to? I mean, could we potentially, uh, if we have a cultural idea that you know separation of race and state is as strong as the ch- separation of church and state in the U.S., maybe we can you know we can have more open immigration and not have to worry that much about it. You know, I, I have a I have a hunch that uh, 
that's not a good equilibrium. I have, I mean, I, and here's what I'd say. I, I have a hunch that um, pro programs like affirmative action um, in some form or another are an important part of keeping together an ethnically diverse uh, society. So basically people can't, people can't not think about it. And so therefore, since they are going to think about it, addressing it in a way that is, that balances the benefits against the costs um, is, the, is the way to do it. If I want to point to a country that's tried this separation of race and state, that's another rich country, France has tried to do this, right? It's very, as you might know, like it's very hard to collect um, um, demographic data uh, separated by ethnicity or so-called race on in France. And um, it's because it's just illegal, right? It's basically impossible. So, um, how, you know, is that working out great there? Is that a great solution? I mean, I have my doubts. I think that basically there's a, there's a sort of Brian Kaplan element here too. It's a sort of cultural pacifism. Um, there's a cultural pacifism case to be made here, which is that um, you know resolving some of these conflicts about um, inequality that correlates with ethnicity through affirmative action programs is probably the least cost way to address those problems. Hmm. You know, that's interesting. You say that it's uh, this is a uh, sort of a glue that's necessary to hold the society together. Because if you actually poll Americans on affirmative action, and we've seen this, uh, you know, we've seen referenda, um, you know, referendums at the state yeah, level, yeah, yeah. Um, and the anti-affirmative action uh, side has won. Um, and this is despite, I mean, this is despite our elites being really obsessed with racial classification and our government teaching people. Yeah, yeah. yeah to do this. So maybe it's, I mean, maybe it's not, I mean, maybe the colorblindness, you know, does have some deep root in American culture that we can uh, sort of coalesce around. It's just, you know, the elites, maybe, you know, they're better on most things, but maybe on this issue in particular, they're, they're bad. And, uh, you know, if, well, we, if we somehow I mean, overcame them, we would, we'd have a better, uh, we'd have, we'd get along, all get along much better. You know, if we go with like Kaplan's myth of the rational voter story here, it might be that people want that policy, but they don't want the effects of that policy. So and so you're offering them this policy, but they're not thinking down the game tree enough to think through what will be the effects of that policy. And um, uh, having um, affirmative action programs that are sort of that basically help to reduce income inequality and help to slightly reduce um, racial differences and unemployment rates might be an important path to maintaining uh, a higher degree of social harmony. Yeah. And do you think maybe because it's so symbolic, like, you know, the, a lot of the things that the people who are worried about diversity, they worry about, um, you know, they, they worry about just, you know, the number of senators or the number of CEOs or whatever. And, you know, this is just a handful of people. When I hear people on the left who want economic redistribution, they're, you know, they're, they're often thinking in much broader terms. And some of the, some of the socialist leftists, you know, they criticize sort of the wokes for being too concerned with these, uh, superficial things. Um, could, you know, this goes back to, I guess, to my earlier question of whether the culture war is somehow a um a uh you know an indirectly sort of healthy distraction from what americans would be doing anyway um you know does that is that plausible to you i mean to me I, i'm almost seeing as i mean like i sort can't of the rule it out war. but it doesn't strike me as the most likely outcome again because it just seems to be tilted Okay, so Garrett, uh, final question. Let's say the um, America sh uh, adopts your preferred immigration policy. Um, what do you see the political economy of that looking like in, say, the next 10, 20 years? Oh, I think that uh, certainly from the 10 to 20 year window, um, that's when you might start seeing a policy uh, that's where people, where politics is less about, you know, let me see. 
I'm going to, I'm going to just pause there. Um, so if we, if we focused on an immigration policy that um, was a balance of say, focused on high skilled immigration and that gave some small number of plus points, some sort of, you know, uh, points for people who came from countries that had high ancestral experience with um, economic success. I think together what you would get is an American politics that was more willing to engage in win-win thinking, especially if the numbers were large, right? So I think less of economic policy ends up being about redistribution and more ends up being about uh, growing the pie. I think it gets a little bit easier to follow YIMBY policies where people say, yeah, let's build some more houses. And I know some people will be hurt along the way, but it's worth it. Um, I think you'll probably tend to get more technological progress. You'll get more support for sort of reasonable levels of patent protection. Um, it's a little bit utopian, but I think it's exactly what you get if you just basically push in the direction of um, creating a population where more people are interested in technology, more people have uh, higher test scores, and more people have ancestral experience with economic success. I think you wind up with basically more win-win thinking, a little bit less social conflict, and um, a path of greater productivity that's shared around the world. Have you ever, um, yeah, have you ever uh, read uh, Rod Unz's theory about how low-skilled immigration made uh, made um, Silicon Valley possible more than high-skilled immigration? Uh, no, I've, I've never heard about this. No. Okay, so he says that East Pal Palto Alto, which is right next to Palo Alto, was yeah. basically the, you know one of the most violent places in the country, um, uh -huh. and that you know it was hard to build anything in Palo Alto because you would take a you know you would take the wrong exit on the highway and you'd end up you know in fear for your life. And so he says the low skilled immigration uh, came. Um, it displaced a lot of the natives. The crime rate went down, and then uh, and then Silicon Valley was able to to build itself. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling this story because it, there is sort of a um, an effect where immigrants, if you think about them as sort of willing to move into urban areas, um, you do imagine they would probably reduce the crime rate. Um, do you ever th have you ever thought about that as sort of a uh, you know as, as a sort of way to improve our inner cities? If this you know if the cities are important for sort of as they are, of course, for technological cities are important for technological progress. And yeah, you're right. Um, you're right about a, an, an important fact, which is that first generation migrants in particular um, tend to have quite low crime rates and tend to sort of be in a way uh, head down and getting a lot of great things done. And then their children, you know, get more educated. And sometimes uh, sometimes this is something that happens in the cultural transplant literature a lot. Right. Which is you find that the first generation immigrants are these sort of, you know, they really do embody the ideal of the migrant who's like working hard, may not have formal education, doing good things, um, causing fewer problems than the average American does, because the average American does create problems. Um, and then it's the second generation that often reverts to what the cultural transplant theory would predict. So I'm open to the idea that like, uh, first, this is, you know, in, in a way, this is the sort of Straussian reading of some of these YIMBY approaches that say we should have a lot of, um, uh, migrant visas for the most depressed cities in America. I think of that as a basically a, a, a Straussian sort of left of center way to impose uh, de facto far right policies as part of uh, urban renewal. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I have to say, I don't. Yeah, if I was going to guess, and it's just a guess, what, what would it be like? You know, if we if we cut off immigration. 
you know, part of me thinks maybe not, nothing would change. Like the actual numbers don't really matter. As long as there's like one illegal immigrant, like you could put on Fox news or something, people would be like, yeah. okay, like the, their politics would be exactly the they same. Would just, they'd love to rave about that. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. And then, it, you know, part of me thinks that maybe, you know, we just sort of go back on the social democratic path. That's sort of, this is, this is sort of the, you know, this is sort of the, um, uh, just the natural flow of democracy. That's where it moves towards, towards social democracy. And, you know, we are sort of, you know, anti-elitism are sort of, you know, uh, all kinds of dysfunction are sort of a, uh, a, uh, a sort of a, a uh, like a roadblock to that or a speed bump at least uh, to where we're going. But you're right. I mean, you, you, when you talk about sort of the, it just maybe delays, maybe one day in 30 years, we'll have, you know, an economic reckoning well, where the socialists will gain every part of government and be able to do whatever they want. You, you could be, you could. It's you not could, that it ends up being socialism. It's just that it probably just ends up being crummier policymaking, right? Maybe it ends yeah. up being socialism, right? But maybe it ends up just being sort of crummier policymaking um, that makes it harder, makes the legal system kind of work less, makes everything clunkier. Um, when I look across country, when you look across countries and say, why are some countries a lot richer than others? It's not really, so, you know, strong social democracy versus raw laissez-faire capitalism. I mean, that's a, you know, that's not the issue. It's like having, it's more about having a legal system that's functional, that can get things done in a reasonable amount of time. You know, the cliche that institutions matter is true. And part of institutions is just being a country where things kind of work. Yeah. And are are I you think, worried? Uh, 20 or 30 years from now is when you start moving toward a country that's a little bit less of a place where things kind of work. Yeah. So like judicial quality, for example, would be very important to you. Are you worried? I mean, if you've seen the data on the Biden judicial appointees where, you know, they're they're like now like all women and minorities, apparently. I mean, the, the black overrepresentation, the Hispanic overrepresentation seems like a lot of affirmative action going into these judicial nominees. Do you, do you see that as potentially concerning? You know, I think the filter is so strong for the for the nominees on average. I'd be curious to, you know, I'd be curious to see like whether the filter, whether the, the actual set of skills of this new wave of nominees is much lower. I mean, I can't, it's hard to tell from the outside, right? 20 years from now, we'll have enough judicial decisions that you can actually do econometric analysis on this. But I do know from the board literature, from the literature on corporate boards, that, you know, it's really hard to find serious evidence that um, diversity sort of uh, pushes for diversity on corporate boards is actually hurting corporate performance. And I think of that as a similarly selected group. So um, I think that to me would be my pretty well tested count, you know, a, um, comparable case. Yeah, maybe. I mean, if you look at the uh, LSAT, for example, uh, based on race, uh, the elite schools. I mean, they're they're, they're pretty they're pretty massive gaps. I mean, based on race, so there's a standard yeah. deviation. So you're if you're above average, I mean, I will point out it's all still way above average, right? So definitely way above I, average. Yeah. But you know, if the quality, if you know, this maybe uh, hard to perceive sort of difference in quality yeah. makes a difference. Yeah, uh, yeah. So you're. Um, yeah, so you finished a, a trilogy. This is the you call it the Singapore trilogy, right? Uh, yes, what's, yes. what's the next What's the next project for you? Um, so the next year, I have I'm going to be spending on some technical, you know, theoretical academic papers that I've been putting off for a while. Um, and then my next project is uh, I have two projects that I've been thinking about. One very seriously. One is um, a book called The Neoclassical Reality that explains how basically all these uh, neoclassical macroeconomists. Uh, Lucas, Sargent, Prescott, all have really good insights into like into the nature of society that aren't really appreciated. They were considered basically fancy macro theorists, but I think they have a lot to tell us about trust, trustworthiness, commitments, 
how you learn about a world that's complicated and ever changing. Um, and I think there's basically a sort of uh, everyday human insights that are available from these very mathematical theories. Uh, but I, I think the world should know more about them. I'm also thinking about a book about boards, boards in general, not just corporate boards, but nonprofit boards uh, about judges, panels of judges. Basically, the, the fact that small groups like this seem to function far better than a lot of naive economic thinking would predict. You know, nonprofits with like no incentives at all for good behavior can still crank out really good um, uh, management outcomes. And I think it's worth thinking through why it is that um, this works. My late colleague Gordon Tullock thought about this in the context of king and council. You know, there's a lot of libertarians or small subset of libertarians who romanticize monarchy. Um, and, um, but as Gordon Tullock pointed out, kings were almost always controlled by councils. And these councils were small groups that were basically like a corporate board. And they could really tell the king what to do a lot of the time. Chinese emperors lamented this, right? Like, why, I'm the emperor. Why can't I do stuff? Well, there's all these advisors who say you can't do it. Yeah. But this, this right. sounds like, this why sounds is like this a... equilibrium. Why is this king and council outcome in equilibrium? Why do boards work so well, even when the incentives are weak? Yeah, but you, you seem you, you. But you're you're a big fan of democracy, presumably. So you don't agree with those libertarians who like who like monarchy, right? But you're 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 saying that it does work within. I'm here to point out that the, like the um the the naive but intuitive story the monarchy should work because the king has skin in the game, 100% equity ownership. That's never the equilibrium, right? The king ends up sharing power with this uh, board, and the board ends up probably creating a lot of the value of the organization. So, um, and this is true in corporations where privately owned, you might, you know, in, in our classes, we teach that there are these unitary entrepreneurs who own the whole firm. And so they have the right incentives to make the pie grow. That's not what happens, right? There's a CEO with a very tiny share of the, or a president maybe, um, and chairman of the board with very tiny shares of the stock. And they're really controlled by the corporate board who have very much smaller shares of the stock and who are sort of lazily paying attention to how the firm is run. And yet somehow that's the best way to run a firm we've ever come up with. Having like 20 people who are halfway paying attention, uh, halfway, um, mostly inattentively monitoring the firm seems to be the way we actually decide how firms get run. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So okay. true, for, true for corporations. It's true for what, what we think of as traditional monarchies. Um, and in between, to some extent, it's true for presidencies as well. It's a little bit hard to document there, but uh, presidents are often, you know, Creatures of their staff, and they place great weight on what their staff is telling. And what 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 was the um, the first book you said? These neoclassical like, economists they had these insights. What, yeah, what are neoclassical reality. Basically, the neoclassical economics has some real insights into the nature of our oh, mostly opaque world. Um, and that basically, Lucas, Sargent, Prescott, all Nobel laureates now, um, they have good ideas about. Um, how you learn about the universe when the data just do not want to cooperate with you. Mm. So there's, it's like a philosophy of science thing. It's not really a, yeah, really. Yeah. It's uh it's, it's more, it's closer to a philosophy of science, but with, um, you know, uh, news you can use. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That one sounds very yeah. interesting. Yeah. I would like to, yeah, I think one like... of Lucas's best ideas is known as the Lucas critique. And, um, uh, it's the idea that it's a step beyond correlation is not causation. It's that um, correlation is not policy manipulability. So if you just looked at raw data on um, 
the number of attacks at Fort Knox and the amount of manpower at Fort Knox, you'd see there's no relationship at all because there's never been an attack on Fort Knox. So a naive statistician could say, we could just get rid of all the security on Fort Knox. It's been a total waste all these decades. So why don't we just get rid of it? But that means ignoring the Lucas critique, which is we know people have been paying attention to the fact that the place is guarded. If we got rid of all the guards of Fort Knox, someone would just come in and knock the place over, take the gold. How does this build on or how is it related to, say, just Bayesianism? Like you have this prior that, uh, you know, people would steal gold. And therefore, you probably want some security at, at Fort Knox. I mean, it, it, how's the Lucas critique sort of different than that? that? Ex- I mean, that explains why people actually have the policy. But it means that you cannot look at historical correlations um, under one set of rules in order to learn about the, the outcomes that would exist under another set of rules. So you basically, you need to your um, optimal policy. The, the outcomes that we see in the world right now are a result of the rules that exist. And some of those rules are basically invisible to us as uh, to, to, to casual observers. Yeah. So I, so I think, I think that, yeah, that makes sense. So I wrote a paper the, uh, for Cato, for the Cato Institute a while back on uh, economic sanctions. And my argument was they don't work going into the economic literature. And then I've been thinking about this recently and, you know, thinking of the Lucas critique makes, as you describe it, makes me think of that. It's like, we don't have, we don't have the counterintuitive. We don't have the countries that never built a nuclear program that never, uh, that never invaded yeah. their neighbors because they were afraid of being cut off from the global economy. So yeah, I'm not sure if I, I'm not sure if I still buy what I wrote. <laughs> I wrote about sanctions now, give it, yeah, give it that idea. Yeah, so it's hard to learn about cause to be to say clear effect to make clear claims about policy effects when we're not running real experiments. And even if you do run experiments, um, you're really limited in what you can interpret from that experiment. So basically it's a reminder that social science is hard. I like I, I like that. Yeah, I, I really like that. Have you ever looked at? I, you know, I wanted to write an essay along these lines, but it was something about like the minimum wage debate. Um, and like you know, somebody will say it increases employment rate, and the other person will say it you know doesn't increase the employment rate. And I just feel you know unemployment rate, and I just feel like it's uh, it's so you know there's so much invisible that's that you're not you're not picking you're not picking up on that, right? Yeah, that's um, why you need, that's why you need a vast empirical literature, right? You need a vast empirical literature, but I mean, it seems like it's probably, you know, hopeless. I mean, there's so much that's unseen that like, you know, yeah. like we have like a minimum wage that's like, you know, nobody's minimum wage is zero, right? So we don't have that counterfactual. And so you don't know like what kinds of creativity, what kind of social arrangements would be if you could just have, you know, interns or you could pay people $2 an hour, you don't know, like how good that would be for like the lower class. I have an, you know, I have an intuition that it would actually be good if you could take some unproductive people and just give them something to do with their hands, but, you know, changing the minimum wage from $8 to $9 an hour and compare these two, um, these two jurisdictions is not going to give you that. Right. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's hard. And yeah, I would, I would read that book. I, I think that's, that, that sounds very interesting. Okay. okay. Well, it's been great talking to you, Garrett. And, uh, until next time. Thanks for having me.